please turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1 and find verses 1 and 2 where we'll focus our attention this morning. I wonder if you've read Prince Caspian, The Return to Narnia. It's hard for me to pick a favorite Narnia book, but there is a scene in Prince Caspian that is one of my favorites, and I trust it will be true of our hearts as we work our way through the book of Hebrews. Remember, C.S. Lewis wrote these allegorical tales to help us put stories and ideas and words to the realities of our faith. Lucy, she's the ever-lovable youngest sister, and she finds herself in one scene in Prince Caspian in need of her Lion King, in need of her hero, in need of her champion, Aslan. Aslan, who represents and pictures Christ as the one that she needs. She realizes if she gets no help, if she's on her own, she will not be able to do what he needs her to do. So her faith brings Aslan close. And because of the peril of their situation, she and her traveling team, are they're lost and they're scared and they're in danger. She desperately needs Aslan. She thinks she sees Aslan. And she pursues him into the woods and finally she overtakes him, though he lets her catch him, and then I'll read what happens. Aslan, Aslan, dear Aslan, sobbed Lucy. At last, the great beast rolled over on his side so that Lucy fell, half sitting and half lying between his front paws. He bent forward and just touched her nose with his tongue. His warm breath came all around her and she gazed up into his large, wise face. Welcome, child, he said. Aslan, said Lucy. You're bigger. That is because you are older, little one, answered he. Not because you are bigger? I am not, but every year you grow, you will find me bigger. You see, the simple truth that the beautiful scene in Prince Caspian teaches us is one that you'll find echoing throughout Hebrews. The longer you know Christ, the bigger he seems. You will never grow tired of learning Christ. You will never bore of worshiping Christ. You will never exhaust the truth of Christ. And though he seems bigger, it's really just that you're older. Maybe you've come to appreciate his wonder and marvel at his power and fear his perfection. And though he seems bigger, it's really just that you're older. Maybe you've surrendered to his might. You've fallen before his sovereignty. You've truly denied yourself and have found in him all that you could ever want or need. And though he seems bigger, it's really just that you're older. Christ can do everything, but he cannot improve because he is already perfect. Christ can do anything, but he will not be more impressive tomorrow because he's already all perfect today. In fact, Jesus is better than you will ever know because for eternity, the infinite realities of the glory of Christ will be what, will be what is unfolded to us. We'll constantly be learning how much better Christ is than we understand him. 
And this is in part the message of the Hebrews. The more we learn of Christ, the bigger he seems, the more beautiful he is, there's always more. And today we'll see from this preacher who loves this flock. Hopefully you were able to catch the introduction to this book last week. But as we'll see, this preacher who loves his flock, these people who are familiar with persecution, these people who see on the horizon more persecution coming, he's going to tell them that Jesus is better than everything. He's going to tell them that no matter where they're at in understanding Christ, he's always better because he's the final word of God And because God has spoken through this final word, we must listen. So stand with me and hear from Hebrews chapter 1. We'll read the first four verses. Hebrews chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to this passage and we come to you together in hopes to hear your truth and to worship you, I pray that you'll help us to see this wonderful reality, the beauty of what we see as the finished word, the final word that you have spoken, not by prophets, but through the work and life of your Son. Help us this morning to be put in awe of him. Help our right understanding of him cause everything else in this life to shrink. Help us to see him as bigger and to recognize that he is always bigger than we can ever imagine. Help us, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, you may be seated. God has always been in the business of showing himself to his creation. Adam and Eve in the garden knew God and were known by God, and there was no barrier between them. There was no break in communion. But then sin came, and with sin came corruption and defilement and depravity and a fundamental marring of the image of God and an inability to communicate to God. We still bear God's image no matter How innocent the baby or how guilty the outlaw, we bear the image of God, but because of our fallen nature, we don't commune with God in the same way that Adam and Eve did with God. God's holiness now, coupled with our sinfulness, would kill us. And so since the exile from the garden, God has been revealing to humanity who he is. And scripture teaches what this revelation over time, often is called a progressive revelation. Simply put, it means that God revealed himself to his people over many centuries, periodically giving them new information that built on previous revelation, but never did it, nor can it, contradict previous revelation that's already come. What's this look like? Well, for example, 
The Lord promised, if you remember in Genesis chapter 3, the Lord promised the serpent after the garden sanctuary was destroyed that he would send one who would come and crush his head. From the woman would come a conqueror. That promise of judgment to the serpent was also the promise of hope for humanity. But that promise, though true in absolutely every way, is incomplete in what it conveyed. Not inaccurate, just incomplete. God then a few thousand years later spoke to Abraham and gave him the promise of salvation in Genesis chapter 12. God promised Abraham, or Abram at the time, who was fatherless with a name that meant father of great nation, that he would in fact have a great nation. God promised not only a great nation, but a redeemer that would come that would bless all the nations of the earth. And not just that, but he would have a specific land confirmed in Genesis chapter 15. God promised to bless and protect and grow the family of Abraham to benefit and bless the whole world. So the promise to Satan that was one of judgment was the promise of hope to humanity that's confirmed and expanded in the understanding of what we see in Abrahamic covenant. A few centuries after Abraham, God spoke to Israel through Moses, the old covenant mediator. All of these continued revelations, the accumulation of revelation never changes, never nullifies previous revelation, but it adds to and expands. God was working with all of mankind after Adam and Eve. God was working with just a family and a clan with Moses, and then God began to work with one nation with Moses after Abraham. He was adding the law, which did not overturn the promises that God gave to Abraham. That's the whole point of Galatians chapter 3. These promises, this law, it reinforces the promises, the hope in God's promises. And after that, the prophets gave more revelation regarding God and man and the work on our behalf, bringing salvation to his people. You see, progressive revelation is not a movement from false to true. It's not a movement from error to truth. It's not a movement from something wrong to something right. Progressive revelation is a movement from truth to more truth. There's a progress, but more than the progress, there's an accumulation. Progressive revelation is the lesser to the, to the greater, the provisional to the permanent, the inadequate to the sufficient, the, the less than you need to the more than you can imagine. And the thrust of our passage in Hebrews chapter 1 is to teach us the progress of revelation has actually stopped. Jesus has put a period on the revelation of God. But I think it's interesting and often misunderstood. This is not a grammatical argument. It's not a logical argument. It's not even a theological argument. The argument the preacher uses to close the canon and to end the progress of our revelation is a person. The period in God's revelation comes from the person of Jesus Christ. Yahweh's final revelation is the incarnation of his son. The progress of revelation has been complete. That's what we see today when we read God has spoken. And what must we do when God speaks? How are we able to respond to God's revelation? Well, that's what we'll see in these first verses. I want you to see in verse 1 that we must marvel at God's previous revelation. Remember what came before Christ. It's not untrue. What came before Christ bears the character of the one who wrote it. What came before Christ has within it the beauty of the mystery of Christ that's simply unrevealed. 
And so we should marvel at the previous revelation that God has given us. Look again at verse 1. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. In both verses 1 and 2, the main action idea or word is the speaking of God. The one who speaks. What was spoken and how was it spoken is contrasted between the two verses, as we'll look at later. And so to understand what the preacher is saying, we need to understand what is happening when God speaks. Can you imagine two more words, that sh- two words that should more arrest your attention than God spoke? We've become very familiar with the idea that God spoke, but perhaps we shouldn't be so familiar. Words are absolutely amazing things. Imagine this afternoon your son comes into your study as you're practicing your normal discipline approach to memorizing the minor prophets, and he barges in, and he says, the chiefs won. For many of us, those are captivating words, expected words. Imagine you're at lunch with your empty nest husband, and your newlywed daughter calls you, and the first words out of her mouth are this, I'm pregnant. Happens a lot around here. (laughs) Words are amazing. Imagine you're at the doctor as he reads your test results and you say, well, what's the big picture? I don't understand. He just says, not good. Words, they communicate an amazing, profound, massive amount of information in tiny little moments with such little effort. But can you hear two words that should really catch your attention like this? God spoke. The impact of God's revelation is matchless. There is nothing ever said that determines the future, that determines life, that determines circumstances, that determines death. Nothing ever said that brings about effect like when God speaks. He has spoken. Have you listened? For a moment, consider the beauty of God's revelation. It's not just what God has said. It's often how God has said it. And in this first little section of of Hebrews, it's as if the preacher is attempting to fill our minds with the beauty of God's Revelation, just as much as the substance. The auditory beauty understands, underscores the loftiness and the divinity of what God has said. This theme, God has spoken, is not just written, but it's displayed. Remember that this is a preacher who's preaching this, so this has been preached to people. It was read to people. And this letter would have been read aloud to this congregation. They would have immediately felt their spirits lifted up by the wonder of this written, spoken word. This is not a grocery list. This this is not a table of contents about who God is. This is a wonder of God's word written down for us that, that takes us out and transports us from the poverty of our circumstances and the difficulty of our struggles, that it takes us to the height of divine revelation, which is actually Christ. For example, these Verses are full of eloquence. Modern preachers are rarely orators, rarely. Occasionally, they are 
engaged hopefully in rhetoric or maybe practitioners of logic, but it seems like storytelling and sentimentality has become the, the norm of today's preaching. Not so with this preacher. Not so in the body of work we call Hebrews. Listen to how this brilliant Norwegian commentator named Dr. Grindheim Sigurd describes the flavor of this opening paragraph, okay? He says, this is worthy of a brilliant stylist. The letter's opening words form a mellifluous assonance. Anytime I have to Google what some guy with English as a second language is saying, it's a humbling thing. Like, how did he come up with this stuff? What does it mean? It means it's better than you and I can write it. It means it's more beautiful than we can imagine it. It means it's not something that some dude came up with. It's what God has said about himself. It's the wonder of revelation. The point he's making was this introduction is not only theologically astute and profound, but stylistically the beauty and composition reflect the profundity of the God who's being revealed in these words. If you're listening in Greek, you'd hear meter, you'd hear melody, you'd hear alliteration to the words. You can pick up what our Norwegian friends saying if you listen to these Greek words, polyermos, polytropos, poli, patres, and prophetes. Many times, many ways, long ago, fathers, prophets, you can hear the, the P pop in those, poly, poly, pop, pop, pro. That's this guy's preaching, and it's good. David Allen says the opening paragraph of Hebrews may be the stylistic apex of the entire Greek New Testament. Nothing quite like the lofty rhetorical and literary expression of Hebrews 1, 1 to 4 occurs anywhere else. The preacher comes out swinging. There's no sandbagging. There's no hermeneutic of humility or homiletic of hum. He's bringing the supreme beauty of Christ in argument and in effort and in his style. He's talking, but God is speaking. God spoke. What catches your attention in this life? Black Friday? Have you heard about how Amazon made so much money by hosting an NFL game that men stayed home from, watched the NFL game, and now they're expecting like a huge boost in profit because guys didn't go out, so they're going to buy on Amazon? Isn't that amazing? It's ridiculous. These things dominate our life, and yet God has spoke. And we're like, well, I give that an hour and a half on Sunday. God has spoke. Nothing should demand our attention. Nothing should dictate our action. Nothing should cultivate our affection or drive our passion. Like when we hear these little simple words, God spoke. What provoked God to speak? Why did he speak? How did he speak? All these questions are answered by our preacher with the beauty of unmatched prose. The descriptions here in verse 1, long ago, will begin long ago at many times in many ways. Remember, this is describing God's revelation. God spoke. The fact that God chooses to communicate with a rebellious creation should be beyond our imagination. What have we done to merit God speaking to us? But he spoke that we might understand. Therefore, we must understand what he said. Notice that this God spoke, very familiar to us. 
But it's a very monotheistic message in a polytheistic world when this was written. For the Christians in Rome, this was not a culturally appropriate way to say anything. This was one of the many reasons that Christians in Rome had reasonable, tangible, actual fear of the future because they only worshiped one God. Their emperor, he was not just old or senile, but he was actively pagan and a part of a society that viewed him as God and worshiped him as such. To to renounce Caesar in his godship was to be against all of Rome and to bring death upon yourself. So yes, there were a few exceptions. Notably, the Jews were accepted from this. But in AD 49, the Jews upset Claudius. And who got kicked out of Rome? The Jews and the sect of Jews that Rome called the Christians. They all got kicked out because they said there was only one God and it wasn't Caesar. They lost everything they couldn't carry. The Christians were expelled with the Jews. This traditional Jewish faith, as the Romans viewed Christians, started to kind of be its own thing and the object of its own ire. It had both the Romans after it and the Jews after it. The Jews didn't like it because here were these people saying that they worshiped a crucified Messiah. Everybody hated this monotheistic message that the preacher was preaching, but notice he did not care. He's unwilling to waver. He's unwilling to say something like, well, our God says. He says, God spoke. God spoke. Just God. God doesn't have they, them pronouns. God spoke. God is above pronouns. He just is. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. God spoke. And when did God speak? Long ago, from the garden with Adam and Eve to Job, to Noah, the patriarchs, Moses, God spoke. God has always been speaking. God is a speaking God. One of the things that sets Yahweh apart from all of the other so-called gods is that God tells us who he is, tells us how we can please him, tells us how we can be made right with them. He's been doing this since the beginning. His written revelation goes from Job to Malachi chronologically. And so to first century believers in this crucified Messiah, Jesus, who's been risen and now reigns at the right hand of God, they look back and they see long ago this revelation came to the prophets. Even more true for us. It was God who spoke. That's the point. God spoke long ago. Consider also God speaks when he pleases. The time when God speaks is the time that God desires. When God showed up to Abraham or Abram in Ur, worshiping the pagan moon god Nana, why did God show up then? Why did God come to Abraham and speak? Was God leveraged into this? Was God forced? Was his hand called? God spoke when he wanted. When God stopped speaking after Malachi for 400 years, why did God stop speaking? Because God speaks when he wants. But what is meant by God speaking in many ways? Well, the preacher is setting up some contrasts for us. He's setting up contrasts between how God has spoken in the past and how God spoke in his son. The speaking of God in the past is viewed as fragmentary. It's viewed as varied 
This is not a slight on past revelation or an attempt to disparage us from understanding past revelation, but to build a contrast to the coming perfect revelation of the perfect Son, Christ. And so the preacher describes varied revelation, revelation that comes from God in a multitude of ways. One of those is creational revelation. The preacher is, is He's trying to draw this contrast. This is how God has spoken. This is how God spoke. One of the many ways God has spoken is creation. Is it possible for you to look at the stars and not feel the weighty revelation of an almighty God? I would encourage you, if you have kids or grandkids or friends, just drive out to the country. Find a place where there's no street light visible, no yard light that you can see, park your car, get out, and look up. It's amazing. Can you look up and see the little dipper and feel big? Can you gaze at Saturn and feel impressive? Can you look at the moon and be proud of your accomplishments? Turn to Psalm 19. Long ago, in many ways, God has spoken, but that doesn't mean he's done speaking in these many ways. Psalm 19. What is God saying? What is God saying through his revelation that is his creation? Psalm 19 tells us, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. David says, you can't miss this. God's glory is dripping out of the heavens. God's glory is declared. So do you hear it? Do you pay attention? What do they say? Verse 4 tells us what they say. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. David says, you ain't got nothing on that ball of heat God calls the sun. This is an amazing thing that we just get, you know, kind of, ah, sun's out. Hmm, sun's behind a cloud. Go out there and look out. Open your eyes. And what's it going to do? It's going to blind you. It's unbelievable that we get apathetic towards the sun. We shouldn't. Verse 6, its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. God puts us in our place every single day with the sun, with the stars, with the heavens. We just somehow have become familiar with the glory that the heavens declare. May it never be. Look up into the sky, see the beauty of what God has done. The cosmic revelation of God is deafening. Do you hear it? I love Job's reminder in Job chapter 26, verse 14, after marveling at God's glory in all different forms of creation, he says, behold, these are the outskirts of his ways. And how small a whisper do we hear of him? Friend, that's what you learn when you consider creation. No matter how much you know about creation, no matter how amazing it is to you, no matter how profound you think it is that God could do this, all you know is but an outskirt. It's just the edge. 
but I think there's more in the preacher's mind in Hebrews chapter one than just God's creation when he talks to this revelation of long ago in many different ways. It had to be at least to the prophets as he tells us. There is revelation in creation. There is revelation in God's word. There's revelation in dreams and miracles. Dreams like to Daniel chapter two to four, chapter seven and eight in his namesake book, visions of what God was doing, dreams of what God was doing. Visions were given by God to communicate. For example, 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 10 to 15, God is telling his people who he is and what he expects of them from these visions. God spoke in a storm of thunder to Moses. God spoke in a still small voice to Elijah. Though God did not speak in a singular way, there was always a singular speaker. Who speaks in all these different ways at different times? Just God. Middle of verse one, he spoke to our fathers. Now this is a collective of our heritage and past, not a, not a designation of certain dads. This is not just the patriarchs. It was all of the, the families, all of the people, all of God's people in the past. God was primarily speaking to Israel. That's why Paul reminds the Israelites in Romans chapter 3, verse 2, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. They had been given these things by God for what reason? It was entrusted to them to, to be a light to the world. God spoke by the prophets to Israel. But remember, prophets, they were what? Middlemen. They, got all, uh, they never got all the revelation. They all got a part of the revelation from God to Israel. This doesn't make their truth less truthful or less amazing, but at the same time, it is not the same as the whole. Just consider the reality of prophecy. By definition, it is incomplete. It's saying something is coming. It's anticipatory. It's preliminary. It's not saying it isn't true, because it is, but the Old Testament prophets did not provide complete, accomplished, and final revelation. A promise is true, but less clear than the fulfillment. A promise is true, but less complete than the fulfillment. This is why David loved the law. Because it's true. Because it holds the character of God. Because it points to the future and the promises that God is offering. It reveals the majesty of God. It is the very word of God. The law, the prophets, wisdom, literature, all of it from God is our responsibility to hear and to marvel at. It should capture us. I wonder if we have the same affection for the Old Testament as this preacher. How do we think about the Old Testament? Do we look back and see these dispensations described in the Old Testament and say, well, they've passed and move on? The promises made in the Old Testament may have been fulfilled some of them are fully fulfilled. Some of them wait fulfillment. Many of them are fulfilled in the season that we call Christmas. But do we look back and marvel at the God who wrote it? Because God spoke these things from it. We find his character from it. We see his love and his grace and his mercy. You see, the same God who has spoken through his son is the one who spoke long ago at many times in many ways. So don't hear from the preacher what he's not saying. He's not saying, uh, you know, long ago, blah, blah, blah. But now Jesus if you just have Jesus read your New Testament, that's all you need. That's not what he's saying. should be extremely obvious. We just consider the fact that he quotes 
the Old Testament, 20% of this sermon, one out of every five words is quoting the Old Testament. Do you think he values the Old Testament? Of course he does. Do we? We should read the narratives in Genesis and be humbled by God's mercy on wicked people and be amazed by God's forbearance of those people who said they loved him. We should read the law and be broken by our inability to keep the law that God says is good for us. We can't even do what God says is good for us, and it should do exactly what Paul tells the Galatians that it did. It should tutor us and push us and drive us to the beauty of Christ. We should read the law and marvel at how God's passion is for us to love him and love our neighbor. Jesus said everything is summed up in that. We should read the prophets and be blown away by God's passion for his holiness, his dedication to his own glory, and his unwillingness to abandon a people who gave him every reasonable right to destroy them. He forbeared them. But the preacher, he's trying to contrast what God had given in the past revelation to his people with what God has finally given to his people in his son. And the preacher is not through word or practice slighting previous revelation. He is of the opinion that there's no comparison. This was promise. This is fulfillment. Let me ask you, if I said, you know what? I'm going to promise you that I'll send you to Cancun in January. Option one. Or here's tickets already paid for. Which are you going to pick? Some of you don't like sunburns, but for the rest of us, we take the tickets. There's no comparison between promise and fulfillment. That's what the author, that's what the preacher is saying. Jesus is too great to be compared to the promises. We need the fulfillment. So from the pieced together to the whole picture, from the former to the final. We see first we marvel at God's revelation, and second we worship the final revelation. Look how verse 2 begins, but. So there's an indication that there's been a change, and our translations rightly include or insert but here. That's how we see there's a change, but the preacher just uses grammar. He just says, look, this is what happened, now this. Here, there's a little chart for you to see how it's illustrated. Maybe it'll help you understand. Long ago corresponds with, in these last days, God spoke to the Father's correspondence. He has spoken to us by the prophets, by his Son, at different times and in different ways. What happened here? What happened there? Why isn't there anything there? Because once Jesus has come, there's nothing left. See, the preacher is clear. Jesus is the final word. The former is wonderful. It's glorious. It's helpful. But the son is ultimate and final. He is paramount. He is supreme. His revelation is everything. And in the next few verses, this son is detailed out in such a way that we understand that there's no other possibility than for it to be Jesus. We can't worry about his revelation not being be enough because of who he is. God has spoken to us by his son, so don't worry about needing more. The revelation of the son is superior, period. God has communicated at different times to different people in different ways through a different medium. And without denigrating God's previous communication, the author highlights the superiority of the new revelation. But notice this speaking has come in the last days. What does that mean? Well, you see, the clock is running. 
There is an urgency to understand the Son, an urgency to obey the, the Son, an urgency to take the message of the Son to the people who don't know the Son. There's an urgency to bring the light to the darkness because we're in the last days. This little phrase would have been a signal to these ex-Jewish believers. It would have been like pre-highlighting the text and saying that the Messiah is in mind because the Messiah is the one who's expected in the last days to set everything right, to be the deliverer. He's the one who's going to come. Jeremiah chapter 33, Zechariah 9 and 10, all over the Old Testament when the last days are talked about as the days that the Messiah is working and making things right, establishing his rule over his people, saving them, delivering them. And there's speculation about these last days. Maybe a, a better translation would, would be the last of these days. There's a, a certain time in the preacher's mind, and we have to consider that this is Christ's revelation that is his incarnation. Those days or that period of time that brought redemptive history to its absolute full con, uh, culmination. Remember, Jesus in the Gospels, he, he would often say things like, my, my hour has not yet come. You can imagine Jesus' ministry was full of the hate from Pharisees, full of the rejection from Sadducees. They didn't even want to deal with him. The people often, they were confused by him, possibly worshiping him, but they would turn and want him dead eventually. But Jesus would say when they wanted him or wanted to capture him, he would say things like John chapter 7, verse 6, my hour has not yet come. My time has not yet come. But then remember in the garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus was feeling the shame of bearing our guilt, feeling the separation from the Father's love and the forsakenness of the Father, feeling uh, the weight of the impending crucifixion, sensing the injustice of Jews and Romans, knowing the coming finality of his rejection by his own people. Jesus says, Mark chapter 14, verse 41, it's enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. So the preacher, he's calling to mind for us in these last days the wonder of the Son's salvific work, the majesty of his priestly efforts on our behalf, the glory of his willing perfect sacrifice. And he says, God has spoken to us by his son in these last days. Why the last days? Well, I think two things are going on. God finished his work of salvation on your behalf, and he's done talking. What is left to be said? God has spoken. His son has come. His son has done what's promised. God has spoken. The Savior of the world has left heaven and come to earth. He lived a righteous life. He lived a life of perfect humanity. And since Adam and Eve were evicted from Eden, there was never any hope of that even being imagined. And Jesus did it. And then because the truly man was actually righteous and willing by faith to believe that his death would please God and set you free from your sin and be the satisfaction of God's wrath on your life, he went to the cross and made purification for your sins. When this was accomplished, what was left to say? God has spoken in his son. Christ's life and work spoke the final words. 1 Corinthians 10, 11, Paul says, the end of the ages has come. 
and it came with Christ. Though Christ has won the decisive victory over evil, as we'll see in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 and 15, we as his people, we as his followers, we're still waiting for him to bring us to our final salvation. That's our future hope. We're not oblivious to the struggles of this world, the realities of life, the rampant wars, the, the promotion of evil as good, murder on the streets, murder in the womb. Christ does not appear to be enforcing his kingdom in the here and now. So where's our hope? What's our hope? Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 and 28, that's our hope. We're all going to die. You say, well, that's not a lot of hope. We're all going to die, and then comes judgment. That's even less hope. That's not encouraging. What is if your judgment has been satisfied? Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28, Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Every once in a while, you read a verse in your Bible, and you're like, wow, that's it. Why can you live for Christ today? Because you know he's coming back. Do you eagerly wait for him? The father is no longer readying himself for further action. The father is waiting for the final harvest of glory his son has accomplished. And then comes the final vindication and judgment. God is done talking. We are in the last days. And because of that, there's an urgency from God for our worship. Which is why he's spoken to us by his son. It all goes together. It's like a zipper. It fits so while we know that God has spoken and our salvation is accomplished and these final days are evidence of God's supreme work, we still know something wonderful is coming. The horizon is even better than the past. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 14 and 15 says it like this, for here we have no lasting city. Look around. We already lost our target. Here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that's to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. When we look for heaven, when we look forward to heaven, why and how? Why? Because we know he's coming back. How? We offer a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of the lips that acknowledge his name. We're in the last days. God has spoken. What are you doing? We offer a sacrifice of praise to him, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name, his glory, his majesty. We worship him. Notice Hebrews chapter one, verse two. He has spoken to us. Is that not mind boggling? That he has spoken to us? He's made himself known to us? From the old days of piecemeal revelation to the final days of Christ's complete revelation. The revelation of the past was diverse and partial. The revelation of the Son is unified and definitive and final. We have the total of what God desires to give. And we have it. It's been revealed to us. And the revelation is God's Son. By His Son. It's not a new covenant, not just more to add to the Bible. It's His Son. His Son's unique. His Son is final. His Son is Him. The force of language is perfection in substance and form. Everything about Jesus is absolutely full and perfect, complete. You know, you and I have never experienced anything perfect. One of the last premarital sessions I have with young couples, 
I remind the bride, because the groom's not listening, but I remind the bride that there will, be, there will be something that happens at her wedding that is not perfect. And it's okay. Something's going to go wrong. Something's going to fall outside of her acceptable parameters of perfection. If you have ring bearers and flower girls, they're going to be a problem. That's just how life works. The goal of the perfect day doesn't happen. But Jesus doesn't have a goal of a perfect day. Jesus just is absolutely always and everything perfect. You have never acted in a moral situation for a moment in perfection, and he has never fallen outside of perfection. In verses 1 to 4, Jesus as the Son, it's this massive theme that, that Jesus is portrayed as the preexistent, eternal Son who from eternity past shared in the full divine nature of the Godhead. And as such, he became the full and final revelation of God in his role as the incarnate Son who provided complete purification for sin because of his obedience to God's saving purpose. He has been made heir of all, the exalted son of God. He is seated in the position of greatest honor in God's heavenly presence. Jesus as son is such a grand claim that at the end of these verses, in the middle of verse two through verse four, we're going to get seven reasons why Jesus is the divine son. But don't miss what the preacher is saying. We had the son in part, and now we have the son in full. And he has spoken. Have you listened? The prophets could convey adequate messages on God's behalf, but God remained elusive. His purpose persisted in mystery, but the mystery has been revealed. The Son brings the Father near as the Son brings us near the Father. Remember, Jesus reminds us, John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You see, friend, if you don't know Jesus, you don't know anything. You may be smart. You may know what mellifluous means without having to Google it. But if you don't know Jesus, you don't know anything. The implication from the preacher when he makes such a fuss about the Son being the final, full, perfect, absolute revelation from God to us is that we have to listen. And that's the theme to the whole book of, list, of Hebrews. Are you listening? The warning that's going to come for us in chapter 2, the first four verses, the first warning is, are you listening? This sermon is a call to commitment, a call to make Christ everything in your life and make him your only hope in this life. How do you do that? By listening when God is speaking. Remember, a massive theme is crystallized. Chapter 12, verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. The Father has spoken to us in these last days by his Son. Are you listening? You know, it's easy to hear a lot about Christ. It's easy to learn a lot of things about Christ. But sometimes hearing isn't listening. So as we bring our hearts to remember the Lord's death for our life, are you listening? Many people in Jesus' day, they heard his sermons. They watched his miracles. And they cried out, Hosanna, at the triumphal entry. And they cried out, crucify him on Friday morning. They heard lots of stuff. Did they listen? Do you listen? Are you like Lucy, who finds the beauty of Christ ever growing as you mature in understanding him? Is he always increasing, or is Jesus kind of like, well, I got that? Long ago, 
at many times and in many ways, God has spoke, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Friend, have you heard what Christ has said? That on your own, you're at war with him. That in your own power, even your good works that you believe you can do are an offense to God. But that's why he came, because you needed him to. Your whole life is marked and marred by needs and inabilities that only Christ can satisfy and only Christ can fill. God has spoken to us by his son. Have you heard him? Jesus is the highest everything over anything you could ever imagine. Jesus is supreme in every moral category. He stands alone in every measure of glory. Everybody's in darkness, and he's the light of the world. Everybody is hungry, and he's the bread of life. Everybody is thirsty, and he's the living water. Everybody is sinful, and he's the perfect sacrifice. Jesus is able to be tender without being weak. He's able to be all-powerful while remaining gentle. He's able to be lowly without being fearful. He's able to be full of glory without being prideful. Jesus is angry without even being wrong. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the exalted one over all creation. This is the Son whom the Father has sent and appointed him the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the power of his, by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Do you know him? Have you listened to him? Is everything in your life under him? Because if you've listened to him, then everything falls under him. You will submit to Christ because Jesus is Lord over all or he's not your Lord at all. Jesus can't be as great as the Bible claims and you be apathetic towards him. Jesus was above all, over all, directing all as the son of God and yet became the son of man so he could be both human and divine and die for you because you needed him. Do you live as though he has done what only he could? And that you desperately needed. He wasn't forced into being our sacrificial lamb. He wanted to be. Jesus lived, suffered, and died for your sin that you might have life. God has spoken by his son.